Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. Faithful listeners, I thought to bring in the new year, I would do my very first solo show. I'm going to examine 2022 through the archetypal lens of Tarot. There is a method in Tarot where you can determine the card for the year by adding the numbers of the year to find the corresponding card. When added together, 2022 comes to six. So the card for the year is the lovers. I'll also address a few other related cards as well. I was wanting to get this published before New Year's, but the holidays and researching this material took way more of my time than I anticipated. Alistair Crowley wrote that the lovers card is one of the most obscure and difficult of the major arcana, and I think that's true. So I hope getting this to you the second week of January is still acceptable and helpful. Before diving in, I'd like to say a few things about my approach to Tarot. I've been working with Tarot for over 35 years now. I bought my first deck when I was 16. It was the classic Rider-Waite-Smith deck. Uh, That's the deck, if you're not familiar with Tarot, that when you hear Tarot, the imagery from the Rider-Waite-Smith deck is probably what comes to mind. Now, I I typically do not use the Tarot for prediction. I'm not saying that Tarot can't be predictive, because it certainly can, but that's not how I typically read Tarot. I usually refer to my approach as archetypal. Uh, What I do is I unpack the symbolism in the cards using what Jungians call amplification. So I'll be drawing upon myth, religion, philosophy, psychology, the esoteric tradition, including astrological symbolism. I might even venture into a little bit of Kabbalah in my reading here. Uh, The Tarot is an oracle. And ultimately, I think the purpose of any oracle, as the entrance to the oracle at Delphi reminded us, was to know thyself. The cards are meant for self-examination and growth. So that's what I'll be doing, examining the lover's card for wisdom that can be applied throughout the year. I'll refer to three decks, the Marseille Tarot, the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, and the Crowley-Harris-Thoth tarot, as they are the best-known tarot cards, and most other decks are based upon one of these three. The Marseille tarot is the oldest of the decks. It dates to sometime in the 15th century and likely originated in Italy. In the Marseille deck, card six is singular, the lover. It depicts a man standing between two women, 
the woman on the left, who the man is looking towards, seems older and wears a crown. She has her hand on his shoulder. The other woman appears younger, and she has her hand on the man's heart. Above all of them is Cupid, with his arrow drawn, and it seems to be pointing directly to the younger woman's hand on the man's chest. Now, this has been interpreted in a number of ways. Perhaps this is the man's mother showing her approval of his relationship with the younger woman, who is maybe his fiancée or bride. Or perhaps the woman with the crown is the man's wife and the younger woman is his mistress. A traditional interpretation of the card is that it represents a man attempting to choose between two women, or a bit more abstractly, between vice and virtue. In his book, The Way of the Tarot, Alejandro Jodorowsky writes that this is a card of union and disunion, of social and emotional choices. However, the anonymous author of the Christian Hermetic text Meditations on the Tarot notes that, quote, the choice before which the young man of the Six Arcanum finds himself placed is of greater significance than that between vice and virtue. It is a matter here of choice between, on the one hand, the way of obedience, poverty, and chastity, and on the other hand, the way of power, richness, and debauchery, end quote. For the author of the Meditations, the central theme of the lover's card is, perhaps ironically, the practice of the vow of chastity, which they note is the fruit of obedience and poverty. In an article published on the Catholic Exchange, Dr. Donald DeMarco, professor emeritus of St. Jerome's University and an adjunct professor at Holy Apostles College, notes that in the Russian tradition, chastity is referred to as the wisdom of wholeness, as is the virtue that moderates libido, the sexual appetite, and brings it into balance with reason. While the popular understanding of chastity is abstaining from sexuality, DeMarco notes that chastity is not the complete renunciation of sexuality, but the right use of it. As with all virtues, chastity is to be guided by practical wisdom. Unchastity is when we abandon reason and give in to desires, which DeMarco observes causes a blindness that leads directly to imprudent behavior. I'm quoting here, a person who is inflamed by lustful desires is hardly in a position to do what is good for himself or anyone else. This observation is consistent with the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, which identifies desire with the cause of suffering. This desire is bound with greed and the trappings of sensual pleasure. In the Buddhist will of life, Lust is identified as one of the three poisons that keep us trapped in a never-ending cycle of rebirths. This desire is a thirst, tana, which Wapula Rahula writes in What the Buddha Taught, includes not only desire for and attachments to sense pleasures, wealth, and power, but also desire for and attachments to ideas and ideals. 
views, opinions, theories, conceptions, and beliefs. According to the Buddha's analysis, all the troubles and strife in the world, from little personal quarrels and families to great wars between nations and countries, arise out of this selfish thirst. From this point of view, all economic, political, and social problems are rooted in this selfish thirst. The author of the Meditations makes a distinction between pleasure and joy. From my reading, they seem to assume that joy is a higher pleasure. They identify it as the experience of the whole person. Perhaps pleasure is fleeting and sensual, whereas joy is more akin to the Greek idea of eudaimonia, which is often translated as happiness or flourishing, but literally means a kind of good-spiritedness. Eudaimonia, according to Aristotle, is the chief goal of life, and virtue is a necessary condition for its achievement. The meditation suggests that the person who integrates pleasure with joy has both, and therefore is a more complete, a more whole human being. The gratification of appetite may bring about pleasure, but it cannot bring about joy, which is the experience of the whole person. The chaste person does not sacrifice joy for pleasure. Rather, he integrates pleasure with joy so that he has both and is thereby a more complete human being. Moreover, because the heart of chastity is love, the chaste person is more faithful to those whom he loves and therefore refrains from making the other person subordinate to his pleasure. Chastity frees us to love others justly and faithfully. I'll return to these ideas a little later. But for now, before moving on to the Rider-Waite-Smith version of the card, I want to look at one last element of the Marseille uh, lover card, which is the Cupid hovering above the man and the two women. Cupid is the Roman name for Eros, who, in some myths, is the son of Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality and love. For the ancient Orphics, Eros was equivalent to Phanes, a golden-winged, astonishingly beautiful god of brilliant light. The name Phanes means to bring to light. Phanes' Eros was hatched from the silver world egg laid by dark-winged night. Eros Phanes was the firstborn god, creator of all, including all the other gods, and was the divinity that set the universe in motion. In his book, Orpheus in Greek Religion, W.K.C. Guthrie notes that Aristophanes referred to the world egg as being born of the wind. This evokes the idea of a wind egg, which typically refers to sterile eggs, in other words, a yokeless egg. However, Guthrie also observes there was another meaning. He cites Aristotle, who held that wind eggs are the product of a kind of parthenogenesis, a virgin birth, where the hen produces eggs without impregnation. One tradition has the lame god Hephaestus, the son of Hera, and also the husband of Aphrodite, being referred to as a wind child, as he was the product of Hera and Hera alone. 
The idea behind Aristophanes saying the world egg was brought on the wind, Guthrie suggests, is that the, quote, soul, the life principle, either is itself air or being of a similar substance is blown about with the winds and is drawn into the body at birth. The breath is the life, end quote. The connection of breath and the soul is common in the world's religious traditions. Anima in Latin means both soul and breath, as does Atman in Sanskrit. The Greek word psyche also refers to both breath and soul. In Hebrew, the word ruach refers to breath, wind, and spirit, as seen in Genesis 1, in which the wind or spirit of God sweeps over the waters. This all refers to the idea that the soul enters the body via the breath, as when God breathes the breath of life into his creations. Eros is also the topic of Plato's Symposium, where several guests at a banquet drink in honor of the god. Aristophanes, who here is one of the guests, relates a myth that originally primeval humans were a union of two beings. They had four arms, four legs, one head with two faces that looked in opposite ways. There were three sexes, one made of two men, who were called children of the sun, one of two women, these were the children of the earth, and the other a combination of masculine and feminine, made of both earth and sun. These are the children of the moon. Eventually, the god Zeus cuts these beings in two in an attempt to teach them humility. So now we spend our days looking for our other halves so that we can be whole once more. And by the way, if you want a modern telling of this story, check out the song The Origin of Love from the amazing movie Hedwig and the Angry Inch. For Socrates, the virtue of Eros lies in the good and the beautiful. Indeed, the philosopher, that lover of wisdom, strives for the union with divine beauty that is absolute, separate, simple, and everlasting, and never changes. The communion with beauty, which is also the good, is the source of all true virtue. As Richard Tarnas explains in his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, quote, Eros is a complex and multidimensional archetype, which at the physical level expresses itself in the sexual instinct, but at higher levels impels the philosopher's passion for intellectual beauty and wisdom and culminates in the mystical vision of the eternal, the ultimate source of all beauty. Tarnas further notes that the highest philosophical vision is possible only to one with the temperament of a lover. The philosopher must permit himself to be inwardly grasped by the most sublime form of arrows, that universal passion to restore a former unity. I should also mention here the second century tale of Psyche and Eros as told by the Latin poet Apuleius. Here, Cupid, Eros, is the husband of Psyche, soul. Psyche must go through a series of trials, including traveling to the underworld before she and Eros can get there happily ever after. But the main theme of their story is the final union of the two. From an archetypal psychological perspective, this is the story of the individual 
overcoming duality in order to achieve wholeness, the alchemical great work. As Robert Wang notes in his book, The Kabbalistic Tarot, the lover does not represent the mundane love of two persons, but rather the, quote, dualities of a single individual willfully united in pursuit of divine love, end quote. This is the divine love of Socrates, the goal of the philosopher, the culmination of the quest for the philosopher's stone. Sally Nichols agrees. In her book, Jung and Tarot, she observes that Eros transcends the fire of mere sexual passion and can instead represent the divine fire that is a necessary condition for the great work of ego transcendence and self-discovery. She notes that the search for individuation, that is, psychological wholeness, is often initiated by a deep experience of love. The author of the Meditations writes that chastity is the virtue of wholeness, the virtue that prevents us from the disgrace of being reduced to a mere appetite, they note. The word healing is derived from the Old English helan, which means to cure, to save, to make whole. The word health also means to make whole, and it is related to the Old Norse word helga, which means holy or sacred. The anonymous author of the Meditations also suggests that the three vows of obedience, poverty, and chastity are memories of paradise. Indeed, in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, the setting of the lover's card is paradise, that is, Eden before the fall. Eden is when we were whole, before we were separated from the divine. In the Rider-Waite-Smith card, we see Adam and Eve. They are both naked, so this is before the fall. Eve is standing before the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which has the serpent wrapped around its trunk. She is looking upwards towards an angel who Paul Foster Case identifies as the Archangel Raphael. And uh, Raphael is hovering above Adam and Eve and before a bright yellow sun. The sun usually represents consciousness, and here it is going to represent a kind of superconsciousness, that is, consciousness of the divine. Adam stands before the tree of life with twelve flaming leaves that represent the signs of the zodiac. Adam looks to Eve. Uh, between them, in the background, is a mountain. All right, let me break this down a little bit more. Raphael is the angel of the element of air. This invokes the wind upon which Eros is born and the soul is carried. In both the Rider-Waite-Smith and Crowley-Harris decks, the lover's card corresponds to the sign of Gemini, an air sign that is ruled by the planet Mercury. According to Paul Foster Case, Raphael represents superconsciousness, and he associates this with prana, another Sanskrit term like Atman that refers to the life breath. Although Case doesn't mention it here, I might also add ruach since we are dealing with the biblical imagery. Raphael is also the archangel of healing. In fact, the name Raphael means God heals. In the non-canonical Book of Enoch, Raphael is the angel who is set over all disease and every wound of the children of the people. Raphael also appears in the apocryphal Book of Tobit, which tells the story of Tobit, a 
captive in the Assyrian city of Nineveh after Israel falls to the Assyrians. Much like Job, Tobit is described as an upright, pious, faithful man. However, he was blinded while sleeping outside with his face uncovered and sparrow droppings fell into his eyes. The book of Tobit also tells of the plight of Sarah, who was tormented by the demon Asmodeus, who killed seven of her husbands on their wedding night before consummating the marriage. God sends Raphael to heal Tobit and to drive away Asmodeus after both Sarah and Tobit had prayed for death. As for the mountain in the background, Case notes that in myth, mountains are often the abode of the gods and that they call to mind climbing, aspiration, and the possibility of attainment. Case writes that we all have peaks to climb and the incentive to action. The disposing element in our consciousness which leads to volition has always in the background this idea of climbing above our present level. The mountain then represents the alchemical magnum opus, the great work, the spiritual task of purification, the joining of opposites and transformation. It is the work of becoming whole. This would be a good time, I think, to bring in another card, card 15, which also reduces to six. That card is the devil. The Rider-Waite-Smith deck makes clear the connection between the lovers and the devil. In the devil card, a man and a woman, presumably Adam and Eve after the fall, are chained to a block upon which crouches a winged and horned devil. This is the shadow side of Eros. This is that grasping, possessing kind of desire mentioned previously, what the Buddhists identify as the source of all suffering. Both human figures are horned and have tails, perhaps representing giving into not only their animal desires, but their vices, the lower part of themselves. Between the devil's horns is an inverted pentagram, symbolizing the privileging of the material over the spiritual. The devil also holds a torch that is pointed downwards. This is not the fire of divine love, but the flames of what is lower and base. If the lovers is read as a choice, then the devil is what appears when the wrong choice has been made. It is to remain in duality, incomplete and divided, possessed by our desires and projections, separated from the divine. This is the soul trapped in matter, in need of healing. It is the unpurified lead that the alchemists, by engaging in the great work, attempt to transform into gold. I think the card that best represents the great work of alchemy is the Crowley Harris Lover's Card. There's a lot of symbolism in this card. At the bottom are two children, one black, one white. The white child is holding a cup and carrying a bouquet of roses. The black child is carrying a club and holding a lance in the other hand. Between them is the winged Orphic egg entwined by a serpent. This, of course, brings to mind the Orphic creation myth. The egg is gray, symbolizing the mingling of black and white, the union of opposites. Crowley also notes that this signifies the cooperation of the three supernals on the tree of life. That would be Keter, Chukma, and Bina, which exist in the archetypal world. 
Keter is unmanifest infinity, the source of all, that which everything comes from and to which everything returns. Chokmah is the Divine Father, the will to force, and Bina the Divine Mother, the creative aspect of the Divine. The children stand before a black king wearing a golden crown with gold representing the masculine sun and a white queen wearing a silver crown with silver representing the feminine moon. The king has serpents on his robe while the queen has bees on hers. Both represent life and fertility. The king is also bearing the sacred lance and the queen the holy grail, and they are holding hands, showing that they consent to the marriage. The king is flanked by a red lion, the queen by a white eagle. Crowley notes that these are the symbols of the male and female principles in nature. The king and queen, the white and black child, all stand before a hooded figure that towers over them. According to Crowley, this is another form of the hermit, which is associated with the god Hermes or Mercury. And Mercury, of course, is the ruler of the sign of Gemini. The figure is shrouded to, quote, signify that the ultimate reason of things lies in a realm beyond manifestation and intellect, end quote. The hermit is holding his arm straight out over the divine couple and the children in what Crowley identified as the sign of the enterer and a sign of benediction and consecration. It is as if, Crowley observes, he is projecting the mysterious forces of creation. Around his arms is a scroll, which almost seems to be in the shape of a lemniscate, that is the infinity sign. There is something sacred and mysterious happening here. Behind the hermit, at the upper corners of the card, are Eve and Lilith. In the Book of Thoth, Crowley appeals to a legend in which Lilith is the mother of Abel, Eve the mother of Cain, and he identifies the two children as Cain and Abel. In fact, Crowley says that the card would be better named the brothers. Now, I, I'm just going to read Crowley here. There is a legend of Eve and the serpent. For Cain was the child of Eve, and the serpent, and not of Eve and Adam. And therefore, when he had slain his brother, who was the first murderer, having sacrificed living things to his demon, had Cain the mark upon his brow, which is the mark of the beast spoken of in the Apocalypse, and is the sign of initiation. The shedding of blood is necessary, for God did not hear the children of Eve until blood was shed. And that is external religion. But Cain spake not with God, nor had the mark of initiation upon his brow, so that he was shunned of all men, until he had shed blood. And this blood was the blood of his brother. This is a mystery of the sixth key of the trow, which ought not to be called the lovers, but the brothers. Now, I'll be honest, I, I'm not entirely sure what Crowley is getting at here. I'm certainly no expert on Crowley. My best guess is that he is making a distinction between external religion and esoteric mystical experience. The passage I read, according to Crowley, is the description of the card in its primitive form from Liber 418, also known as the Vision and the Voice, which describes a mystical experience. Since I'm not familiar with Liber 418, I'm in no position to delve any deeper on this point. If anyone listening has any ideas, 
please share them in the comments section. I'd love to hear them. One final image on the Crowley-Harris card is, again, Cupid, hovering just above and somewhat in front of the figure of the hermit. Written on Cupid's quiver is the word thelema, which is Greek for will. This seems to me to be a symbolic expression of Crowley's main tenet. Do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. As I said, I'm not at all sure about the association with Cain and Abel, but the astrological association with the lovers is Gemini, the twins. Twins are a common mythological motif that expresses duality and opposites, and the sign of Gemini refers to the twins Castor and Pollux, sons of Zeus and Leda. In some accounts, they were said to spend half of their time in the heavens, the other half in the underworld. Uh, in some other myths, Castor was said to be mortal, while Pollux was immortal. Upon Castor's death, a devastated Pollux pleaded to the other gods that he could share his immortality with his brother. This is quite different than the fratricide found in the biblical story of Cain and Abel. The sign opposite Gemini is Sagittarius, which corresponds to the art card in the Crowley-Harris deck, or the temperance card in the Rider-Waite-Smith and Marseille decks. As mentioned earlier, Crowley observed that the lover's card and its twin, the art card, are the most obscure and difficult of the major arcana. Together they represent the alchemical process of salve et coagula. Crowley explains this as analysis followed by synthesis. First question asked by science is, of what are things composed? This having been answered, the next question is, how shall we recombine them to our greater advantage? This resumes the whole policy of the Tarot. The lovers, again, perhaps ironically, represents solve, the dissolution, the separation, while the art or temperance card represents coagula, the recombining of what has been separated. So, why is the lover's card associated with separation? In the Golden Dawn correspondences based on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, the lover's card is the path between the supernal Sephiroth Bina, understanding, and Tiferet, beauty. Bina is the Divine Mother, whereas Tiferet is the Son. According to Robert Wang in Kabbalistic Tarot, Tiferet is the Sephiroth where one first encounters their higher self, which requires a sacrifice of the false self of the personality. The path that connects these two sephirot is the path that connects pure consciousness from which form emerged with the central point of all manifestation. The corresponding Hebrew letter for this path is Zain. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, which means sword. Swords cleave and divide. Wang observes that this is the sword of perception which cuts to the core of things and defines clearly. In the Tarot, swords are the suit of the mind and intellect, discrimination and analysis. Like Gemini, they are also associated with air. Now, while the major arcana is represented by the paths that connect the Sephiroth, I can't help but to notice that Tiferet is the sixth Sephiroth, so perhaps, given that six is the number of the year, it wouldn't hurt to take into consideration the symbolism of Tiferet. 
Wang writes that Tiferet is the light of the soul on which the life of the soul depends, and that devotion to the great work is the virtue assigned to Tiferet. The principle involved is that when the individual person improves in some way, that improvement works to the benefit of the entire human race. I think this gets me back to one of the original meanings of the lover card, the choice between vice and virtue. This is one of my particular soapboxes, the need for virtue, especially in politics. This has been understood for a very, very long time. Plato wrote about the necessity of the virtues of wisdom, courage, and moderation for achieving justice in his republic. Aristotle, who gave us the first fully formed theory of virtue, also recognized their importance to the body politic. In fact, the end of his Nicomachean Ethics was the beginning of his work on politics. It has been known since classical Greece that for a republic to stand, the citizens and its elected officials must be virtuous. I'll add one more thing here. According to Aristotle, love is the glue that holds the city together. Not eros, that's true, but philos, which is a brotherly kind of love. The Christian commandment to love one's neighbors oneself would certainly be applicable here. For Aristotle, virtue required phronesis, which is usually translated as practical wisdom. This is needed because virtue is the mean between two vices, a vice of excess and a vice of deficit. Virtue is not the exact middle point. Uh, sometimes what is virtuous is closer to one vice than the other. For example, the virtue of Courage is probably going to be closer to a kind of fearlessness or recklessness than cowardice. The point is, practical wisdom is necessary to determine the mean and to guide the individual in their actions. Along with phronesis, the virtue of temperance is needed in relation to the desires of Eros. In the symposium, while praising the virtues of Eros, the character of Agathon identifies the necessity of temperance. And I'm quoting here. He can neither do nor suffer wrong to or from any god or any man. For he suffers not by force if he suffers. Force comes not near him. Neither when he acts does he act by force. For all men and all things serve him of their own free will. And where there is voluntary agreement, there as the laws which are the lords of the city say, is justice. And not only is he just be exceedingly temperate, for temperance is the acknowledged ruler of the pleasures and desires, and of pleasure ever masters love. He is their master, and they are his servants. So we need to overcome the devil of our desires, the devil of our egotism and egoism, those are what need to be separated. The individual is important, no doubt, but so is overcoming the individual for the greater good. As Freud pointed out in his Civilization and its Discontents, if libido, which is a distorted kind of eros, is allowed to run free, then society will fall apart at the seams. Now, I'm no Freudian, so I'm going to take a Jungian approach here and argue that what we need to do is embrace our shadow side by bringing it to consciousness. 
it is when it is suppressed and unconscious that our eros, our libido, causes unhealthy division and destruction. I can't help but to think of the current situation in the United States, where we are acting a little bit more like Cain and Abel than Castor and Pollux. There's a lot of unconscious shadow projection happening. The lover's card tells us separation is necessary as part of the great work, but it is only part of the process. We also have to recombine in order to be whole. Remember, a divided nation cannot stand. Democrats need Republicans, and Republicans need Democrats. We have to stop vilifying each other and instead turn inwards to our own self-improvement. I've mentioned this before, but it is worth repeating as an example. I did not like Donald Trump for a variety of reasons, but mostly because he seemed to be very unconscious of his own shadow. I tried to find a virtue any virtue that he embodied, but I, I couldn't find any. The closest I got was loyalty, but it seemed that he was only loyal to those who were loyal to him. I could identify a lot of vices, though. Arrogance, greed, willful ignorance, irascibility, vanity, wrath, and gluttony. I'm sure I'm missing quite a few. But my point is, I never said I hated Donald Trump or his supporters. Instead, I always tried to turn it in on myself to examine the ways I commit those vices. How am I ignorant? How am I arrogant? How am I vain and irascible? It is only by recognizing these aspects of myself, withdrawing any projections onto him or my fellow citizens, that I can achieve balance and wholeness. It is only when all of us practice this kind of exercise, when we withdraw ideas of self and other and focus on our collective responsibilities rather than our individual desires, when we think and act in terms of the whole and aim for virtue over vice, can we achieve justice and heal the nation. I'd also add that Plato's emphasis on pursuing the true, the good, and the beautiful is especially important in this post-truth world we find ourselves in. We have to remember our opinions are not truth. I quoted from Wapola Rahula earlier, where he identified attachment to ideas and ideals, views, opinions, theories, conceptions, and beliefs as a source of suffering. I think it is clear that our ideologies are causing great suffering now. For Plato, knowledge was justified true belief. Opinion was the stuff of shadow. Ideas are ephemeral. Our fellow citizens are flesh and blood. Our brothers and sisters and worthy of respect. We need to see each other as real again, not just as stereotypes and caricatures. We need to love one another, which means to experience each other in our full reality, which can awaken us to the reality of ourselves, the reality of a world outside of the shadows of opinion and belief, and awaken us to the reality of the divine. It is love, only love, that can free us from our binds and illusions. The author of the Meditations on the Tarot writes that 
we tend to see others as less real, that somehow they are mere shadows while only we experience a full measure of intensity of reality. But this is egoism, and that is what is really shadow. In the Indian traditions, this is ahamkara, the illusion of the self. It is this division of self and other that was the true effect of the fall. For Genesis tells us that God realized it was not good for Adam to be alone. There is no question that we have healing to do. The appearance of the Archangel Raphael in the Rider-Waite-Smith version of the Lover's Card tells us this is possible, but only if we put our attention on the spiritual rather than solely on the material. We have to undergo the great work, or what Muslims refer to as the greater jihad, an overcoming of the ego in favor of the divine. We need to embrace the virtue of humility, and yes, to get us back to where we started, chastity. In other words, we need to aim towards higher pleasures. So, I will end with one final quote from the Meditations on the Tarot. For the real presence of God necessarily entails the action of prostrating oneself in the face of him who is more me than I myself am. And here lies the root and source of the vow of obedience. Total communion between the two, between one and another, which comprises the entire range of all possible relationships of spirit, soul, and body between two polarized beings necessarily constitutes the absolute wholeness of spiritual, psychic, and physical being in love. And here lies the root and source of the vow of chastity. Well, that's a wrap on episode 25 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you appreciated my take on Tarot, uh, please feel free to check out my Tarot site, uh, hermitslight.com, where you can purchase readings if you're so interested. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second, and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.